This podcast is brought to you by the American Enterprise Institute. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, review, and share. Thanks for listening. Here's our show. What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? <laughs> I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? Hi, I'm Danielle Fletka. And I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, you had to carry the ball by yourself this week. What the hell went on? <laughs> well, I had Vice President Mike Pence into the studio to talk to us about January 6th, about his new book, So Help Me God, which just came out. He was at AEI to give a talk and came down to the studio to share some thoughts with us. Timing was fortuitous because just this week, a few days after our interview, the House January 6th committee sent referrals to the Justice Department suggesting criminal charges against former President Trump. And we spent some time talking to Vice President Pence about January 6th, about that day, about Trump's handling of that day, and also his thoughts on a lot of things about Ukraine and Taiwan and uh, all the rest of it. So it was a great conversation. So one of the things that is very interesting to me is that Mike Pence is a very phlegmatic guy. You know, he's very religious, he's very upright, but he's not exactly a drama queen. And yet, over the last six months or so that he has been promoting the book that he wrote, So Help Me God, he has been, I would say, vehement, but he's also described his emotions on that day of January 6th and been very clear that he is just so angry. You know, that is interesting to me because I'm surprised it took him that long to get to a place of anger with Donald Trump. Well, here's the thing that he does, which is, you know, one of the things he points out to me is that this book is the most fulsome defense of the Trump administration's policies that has been written to date. And I think that he he's in a sim very similar place to where I am, which is that I thought that President Trump's policies and his presidency were in many ways one of the best conservative presidencies of my lifetime. And yet on January 6th, what he did was absolutely disqualifying for someone to hold future office. The job of the vice president is to be a loyal advisor to the president of the United States. He did not criticize Donald Trump during the presidency, even though he disagreed with some of those policies. He doesn't say which ones he disagreed with, but he said that he felt it was his responsibility to deliver his advice in private. And when the president decided for him, then great. And when he decided to go the other way, his job was not to go out and publicly undermine the president, which is kind of a refreshing sort of moral view of the job of a vice president and advisor to the president. But when January 6th happened, he did not hold back. First of all, he was under enormous pressure from President Trump and from this clown show of legal advisors who were giving all sorts of justifications as to why the vice president alone could reject the electors. And he just didn't give an inch. He looked at it. He had uh, constitutional scholars examine what he thought was the right position and affirm the fact that, yeah, no, he does not have the authority to overturn the election. And one man does not have the authority to choose who the president of the United States is, which he says is probably the most un-American thing that anyone could conceive of. And he stood his ground. And as he points out, I think one of the things he said that was very interesting was that that day ended up really being a triumph of democracy because our institutions held 
he didn't say it this way, but he did the right thing. I never doubted that he would do the right thing, but he did the right thing. Congress reconvened and certified the election. And whatever effort there was to try and change the direction of the election through force of a mob was turned back in large part because we had the right person in that job of vice president at the right moment in history. So you mentioned the January 6th committee. As all of our listeners know, there was just a referral, one of the final acts of the committee. And we talked about the committee and what's wrong with it and what's right with it. What do you think, Mark, about the criminal referrals? You know, is this going to have any relevance? Do you think that prosecutions are going to go forward? Well, I don't, I don't really have a sense of what's going to happen now. Andy McCarthy was just on Fox with John Roberts and I was watching. And one of the things John Roberts pointed out was the idea that a Democratic attorney general would file criminal charges to prevent a former president from running for office is explosive, (laughs) to, to say the least. And in the context of all the other things that have happened that we're learning about in terms of you know, the Justice Department's interference with elections. We're just learning through the Twitter files about the communications with Twitter to suppress the Hunter Biden laptop and all the rest of it. This is not a period of time in which the Justice Department has a lot of confidence of the American people. And, you know, legal scholars, Andy McCarthy, uh, Jonathan Turley, others have made the case that this is not something that, that would fly in court. I don't know. I'm not a lawyer, so I can't, I can't judge that. I think that it would be very, very unwise to do that because I think it would strengthen Donald Trump. I think it would force a rallying effect amongst his core supporters around him. And I think that he is right now slipping within the Republican Party. There was a new USA Today poll that came out by a two to one margin. Republicans and Republican leaning independents now say they want Trump's policies, but a different standard barrier to carry them. 31% want Trump to run, 61% want some other Republican nominee who would continue Trump's policies in office. I think that if you go back to October 2021, polls showed that 78% of Republicans wanted Trump to run again. It's now down to 31%. This is a man who is, you know, circling the political drain. I think this would just, politically, it would just empower him and strengthen him and cause people who are now looking at other candidates, Republicans who are looking at other candidates who like Trump's policies, liked his presidency, but think he's sort of not helping his cause or their cause, it might cause a rallying effect, which I think would be counterproductive. So here's the problem. Okay, there's sort of the legal merits of this. And I get that uh, Merrick Garland is in a very invidious position. He's a highly partisan attorney general, but we've had highly partisan attorneys general under both Republicans and Democrats in recent years. So Okay, let's set aside the legal merits and the legal arguments. He is in an invidious position, and I I don't envy him at all. But one of the things that strikes me is that the Democrats' strategy during the midterms was to boost Donald Trump, to mm-hmm. boost MAGA candidates, to do everything they could to put Donald Trump front and center in the news cycle every single day. And of course, this was their partnership with Trump. He wanted to be in the headlines. They wanted him to be in the headlines. Doesn't that help dictate where Merrick Garland goes with this? Well, if you follow the principle that this is a very highly politicized Justice Department, then absolutely. I think they probably think it would help their cause. They Look, they've won three elections now running against Donald Trump. If you count the 2018 election, the 2020 election, and now the 2022 election, and probably four if you count the uh, special election after the 2020 election where Republicans lost two seats in Georgia, they'd love to run against Donald Trump again. 
they think that's the best thing they've got going because as we discussed with Rui Tashira on this podcast, running against Trump allows them to just paper over all the things that make them unpopular with the American people. And I think they would, if they had another candidate to face, I think they would very, very quickly have to come to terms with the reality that the Democratic Party has gone far to the left of the American mainstream. So yeah, I think they want to run against Trump and I think that they think this would help them. And I think it would be a highly political move. If Merrick Garland did this, it would be intentional for that purpose. And I think Republicans are moving away from Trump. And this is, as you pointed out, this is the same thing they did with these mega candidates. So Joe Biden gives a speech urging Republicans to please, you know, reject the extremes of your party, be mainstream, be uh, cooperative, you know, meet us part of the way, don't follow the MAGA extremists. And then they spent tens of millions of dollars getting MAGA extremists nominated in half dozen races across the country because they thought they'd be easier to beat. The MAGA extremists were the threat to the threat. They to were the easier to beat. Because they want to run against them because it's easier. So right. they, they always so, tell us, move, right. move away from Trump. But then when Republicans want to do that, they drag Trump right back into the center of everything. Right. That's the real collusion. It's between the Democratic Party and Donald Trump at this point. And that's what to me is is absolutely fascinating. So we're going to have to see exactly how the wheels of justice turn. I do not want to spend the next two years talking about Donald Trump, although I think that the legal merits are interesting. They're not really what this is about. This is about politics. There's no question. Um, So I'm really sorry that I wasn't able to have a chance to join you in sitting down with Mike Pence, but time zone problems. But he is the author of a fascinating new book, you and I have both known him for a long time. Obviously, he's known to our <laughs> to our listeners. He was the 48th vice president of the United States, and he was the 50th governor of Indiana. He was also a member of the House for 12 years from Indiana, sort of an exemplary background in politics. He's one of the politicians uh, out there who, as you mentioned earlier, and you <laughs> you gave him an opportunity to announce on our podcast. It's so weird he didn't <laughs> he didn't go for it. I I really I, I don't know. Strange. I don't know why he wouldn't want to choose our our podcast to make that announcement. I don't really get it, you know. But listen, you know, these guys are all politicians. They make they make their own call. In any case, here's our interview with Vice President Mike Pence. Vice President, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Mark. Great to be with I you. Am, I am thrilled because there's nobody I admire in public life more than you, and so to have you on the podcast is a real thrill for us. I'm humbled by that. It's uh, you know, you know that esteem is mutual. Well, Good to you. see you. Very kind. So you've got a new book out. So help me God. You start uh, the story on January 6th. So let's start there. I never had it for a moment that you would do the right thing, but it was an act of enormous courage to stand up to the President of the United States and all the pressures that were on you. Tell us about that day. Well, as I write in, in So Help Me God, I'd always been loyal to President Donald Trump. He was my president, and uh, he was my friend. Whenever we had differences, and we had a number throughout the years that we served together, I thought it was important as vice president that I express those differences in private, just between the two of us, because I think the role of the vice president, absent a higher loyalty to God or the Constitution, is to stand by the president and support decisions that the president made. I was proud to do that. Um, But in the days uh, approaching January 6th and on that that tragic day, things had to be different. Uh, As I write in the book, I had had made it clear for weeks to the president uh, that I did not possess the authority to unilaterally reject or return electoral votes. Um, 
that had been certified by all 50 states in the country. No vice president in American history had ever asserted that authority. And, and as I've said, I, there's maybe no idea more un-American than the notion that any one person could pick the American president from the American founding forward. Um, we, we rejected that kind of unilateral authority, and, and I believe the presidency belongs to the American people and to the American people alone. But that day, um, I, I could never have imagined um, the violence and mayhem that would ensue. But I'll always believe that we did our duty that day. Thanks to the courage of law enforcement, uh, Capitol Hill police that bravely stood their ground, uh, federal law enforcement and National Guard. Mark, we, I, think, uh, I think we turned a day of tragedy into a triumph of freedom because uh, the elected representatives of the American people were able to reconvene the very same day back in the Congress in the wake of the riot and complete our work under the Constitution of the United States. And, and as I wrote in my book, I, I, I begin on that day, but my hope is in people reading the book will not only know why I did what I did, but how, by God's grace, by being raised by a combat veteran and a first-generation Irish American, having been schooled uh, from my high school days in the Constitution of the United States and uh, having uh, married the love of my life and had the chance to serve in the Congress and as governor uh, and as vice president of the United States prepared me uh, for that moment where it all came down to simply keeping the oath of office that I'd taken. My Marine Corps son reminded me in the days just before that. He said, Dad, you you took the very same oath of office I took as a Marine and Nothing else matters. And that oath ends with a prayer, which ends up being the title of my book. That's why I hope as people read this, they'll, they'll see that I, I give credit to my upbringing. I give credit to my family, my incredible wife, our children, uh, people that served alongside us all the way through that last day in the administration. But I, I hope people also sense that uh, we give credit to God whose, uh, whose grace sustained us uh, all through 20 years of public service and and through the momentous days at the end of the administration as well. So you're in the Capitol, and there's a crowd chanting, hang Mike Pence. How close did that mob get to reaching you, and why did you refuse to leave the Capitol, despite the efforts of the Secret Service to get you, almost force you to leave? I was on the Senate floor when Secret Service came toward the chair that I was seated in as the presiding officer in the Senate, president of the Senate. And they said, we got to go. They said, rioters had... uh, had breached the house side of the Capitol and that we needed to leave the building. I said, we can wait in my office right across the hallway. I was very confident the Capitol Hill police would have things well in hand. I, you know, Mark, you and I have known each other a long time. I served in the Congress for 12 years. I was, uh, I was there when there was a violent shooting in the office of the majority leader and the Capitol Hill police stepped in bravely to interdict. And I was confident they would in this case. So I said, we'll wait. We'll wait in my office. But then my lead Secret Service agent came in not once but twice to insist that uh, we leave the building and um, telling me that rioters were, were moving uh, through the Capitol and that we had to, we had to depart. And I, I frankly uh, uh, grew impatient, and I, pu- I put my finger in the chest of my lead Secret Service agent and said, you're not hearing me. I said, I'm not leaving. And I told him, 
I'm not giving those people the sight of a 16-car motorcade speeding away from the Capitol. And he stared at me, and I stared at him. And at that point, my daughter Charlotte, who, along with my wife Karen, was with us, my daughter helpfully interdicted (laughs) and said, is there somewhere else in the Capitol he could go? And our lead agent said, well, we, we could go to the parking garage. That's, that's secure for now. And, um, and I said, well, we'll go there. And we went downstairs. And, um, and I would learn later that, uh, that as we moved down the stairs that, that rioters were on the Senate side of the Capitol. But for my part, uh, I, I could hear foot, the sound of footfalls. I could hear people chanting. But You heard them chanting, hang Mike Pence. I, I did not hear that until after the fact, but I could hear people chanting and shouting. And um, but I must tell you, I um, I felt no fear. You're right. You were angry. I I was angry. Are you still angry? Well, you know, as a, as a Christian, and I reflect on my faith often in the book. So help me God. Forgiveness is not optional. That's true. And in the days after. January 6th, I, I prayed to show grace to the president over our differences. I prayed for the president, told him I was, and, and I, have also, I have also endeavored to forgive those who acted that day. Uh, although I believe that, that uh, those that were involved in, in the rioting and the violence at the Capitol need to be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law, uh, as many already have been. Did he ever ask about you, call, try to reach you and see if you were okay? Uh, we, we received no contact from the White House. And frankly, when the president's uh, tweet came across after 2 o'clock that, that criticized me by name, I was angry. But, Mark, I frankly didn't have time for it. You had a job it, to do. It, well, it was clear to me the president had decided to be a part of the problem. People were ransacking the Capitol. And I just was determined to be a part of the solution. And so I literally set all that aside and got the Republican and Democrat leaders of the House and Senate on the phone and and began the process of seeing what role I could help play in facilitating a response and completing our work under the Constitution. You write in the book, I want to read this passage, you talk about how you'd always shared your opinions in private, but today things had to be different. My first loyalty was the to the Constitution of the United States. President Trump the other day posted on his Truth Social account, quote, a massive fraud of this type and magnitude allows for the termination of all rules, regulations, and articles, even those found in the Constitution. What did you think when you read that? From the time I was a congressman to the time I was a governor, when I raised my right hand on January 20th, 2017, the oath of office those of us take is very clear support and defend the Constitution of the United States. And um, I think it's unfortunate the president used that language. But for me, it was clear what my duty was that day. And, and I hope as people read the pages of this book, they'll, they'll understand um, the reasons uh, for the stand that we took. Uh, and, uh, but I must tell you, as I've traveled across the country over the last two years, uh, I've been incredibly heartened by the number of Americans of every political background who've taken a moment to stop me at a grocery store or stop me at an airport uh, just to express a word of support and appreciation. Look, I, I'll never forget, and I write about it in the book, the night of January 5th, I was in the Oval Office. 
the president and I have, were beginning what would be a, a very difficult conversation. And uh, he was sitting behind the desk, and I was sitting directly across from him, which was not the chair I generally sat in. We were facing one another, and uh, he pointed out the window and said, did you see that crowd out there? And I said, yes, I saw that crowd, Mr. President. And uh, he said, those people love us. And I said, well, they love you, Mr. President. <laughs> and he said, well, that's probably right. And then I got real serious, and I looked at him, and I said, and those people love the Constitution. And I believe that. And in the two years since that tragic day, I, Mark, I've had every reason to have that affirmed again and again and again, traveling across this country. Look, I, I shared the concern of millions of Americans over irregularities that took place in the election. I, the evidence of widespread fraud that would change the outcome in any given state never would come. But you know as well as I do, there were states in the country that, that changed the rules about voting uh, all in the name of COVID, places like Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, uh, that would later be challenged uh, in court. And uh, I think election integrity is important. And I think it's important that we continue to work to restore confidence in the integrity of our vote. But I believe, and from what I've seen over the last two years, the American people understood that even, even in those difficult circumstances with such anxiety among many Republicans around the country that our duty was clear that day, um, and by God's grace, we did our duty. You've said that in uh, 2024, you think people will have better choices. There's a new USA Today poll that shows by a two-to-one margin, Republican and Republican-leaning voters now say they want Trump's policies but a different standard bearer. 31% want him to run. 61% would prefer some other Republican nominee who would continue those policies that Trump pursued. Uh, if you'd like to make an announcement on this podcast, we'd be, <laughs> we'd be thrilled. But assuming that you won't do that, uh, I'll ask a slightly different question. The majority of Americans want to move beyond Trump the man, I mean, and Republicans too. How do we navigate our way out of the Trump era by preserving what was good about his presidency, the accomplishments that you're so proud of from the administration, while moving beyond Trump the person? Well, I, I do. I think that's all in the hands of Republican primary voters. And I have great confidence that they'll choose wisely in 2024. Uh, uh, we're sorting out as a family and giving prayerful consideration to what our role might be in that. But, you know, I, I hold the view no one could have defeated Hillary Clinton in 2016 other than Donald Trump. I, I write about that in my book. I and you may remember, I actually endorsed another candidate in the primary in Indiana. Mm -hmm. I do. And in all fairness, uh, Ted Cruz did win all three counties I campaigned with him in. And <laughs> Donald Trump won the other 89. So, <laughs> um, but it was, the, I think Republican primary voters knew that coming up against that decades-old Clinton political organization required uh, a figure just as large uh, and just as able to, to fight for our agenda as they were prepared to fight for the agenda of the left. Um, and I was proud to be a part of that ticket and proud to be part of an administration that delivered so much for the American people. And I think the first answer to your question is, I think we got to tell our story. I, I, the thing I've, I've been truly grateful for people that have observed that my book so helped me God might today be the most fulsome defense of the record of the Trump Pence administration uh, that's in print that I sought to do that I'm incredibly proud uh, rebuilding our military uh, securing our border uh, reviving the economy seven million jobs 
energy independence, three Supreme Court justices that through this year now gave us a new beginning on the right to life, made our liberties more secure, had America standing tall in the world, standing with Israel as never before. That's a record I'll be proud of for the rest of my life. And I think our first obligation is to tell that record and also to speak about the opposition that we faced every single day from even before our inauguration from the Democrats and their allies in the national media who, whether it was the Russia hoax, whether it was impeaching the president of the United States for a phone call, or whether it was after January 6, when Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi tried to to misuse the 25th Amendment in a punitive manner that was never intended when it was adopted in the Constitution. There was just this consistent effort of resistance that we saw. And I think we have to tell the story of what we did and what we faced against. But uh, I must tell you the second piece of it is um, I'm not surprised to hear some of those numbers. I don't put a lot of stock in polling these days. It comes up wrong as often as it does right. But I must tell you, some of those numbers resonate with what I've been hearing over the last two years, which are people that will, as I said, uh, without traveling with a big entourage anymore, people spot me with the white hair and say hello and are always gracious to a fault. And people will say, well, we got to get we got to get back to that record. But they want leadership that could unite much of our country. Uh, around our our collective aspirations and goals. And I think that begins with civility. I think it begins with respect. I think it begins with having government that is as good to one another as the American people are every day. You know, here's the thing. Uh, Nobody knows this better than Mark Thiessen, but our politics are probably more divided today than any time in my lifetime. But I got to tell you, maybe it's living in Indiana. Maybe it's going to the Walmart and shopping at the Kroger. I'm not sure the American people are as divided as our politics are. And, and so I, I think there is a, there's a desire to see us have leadership at the national level that you remember Joe Biden kind of promised mm-hmm. and never delivered. Yep. I mean, all the way through his recent raging criticism of MAGA Republicans, and he's never delivered what they essentially promised in their campaign in 2020 about a return to civility. And I think that combination and, and, uh, is, is what people are going to be looking for in the days ahead, fighting for what we believe in, but doing it in a way that honors the tradition of Americans, being decent and respectful of one another. I think if Trump had spent the last two years talking about his record instead of talking about the elect, 2020 election, he'd be cruising to winning in 2024. But let's talk about one question about 2024. So in 2016, New Hampshire primary, he won with 35 percent of the vote. South Carolina, 32 percent of the vote. He didn't get 50 percent of the vote until the New York primary in April when it was pretty much decided. And that was because he was running with a about 30 percent or 35 percent against a divided field. That could happen again. How do we make sure that if we do want better choices, that Republicans settle on a better choice that can face him one-on-one versus having this divided field that lets him win with a plurality? Do, do people who get in have to sort of prove themselves pretty quickly that they've got some support and then get out quickly if they don't? Or how do we do that? I just have great confidence Republican primary voters will sort it out. I really do. I mean, we've gotten a lot of encouragement around the country, and even even more so, I'm humbled to say, since the book came out. As 
you know, when I was vice president, I never thought the story was about me. I, I actually never did a profile interview for four years when I was vice president because I always thought the job of the vice president was to was to serve the president, support the administration in every way possible, uh, and take a half step back. Um, and we did that. But I think in the last uh, two years, as people have come to know me and my family better, and hopefully through the pages of So Help Me God, they'll have a better sense of who we are and our story. You know, we, we've given great thought to what role we might play in the days ahead. But I think we have many outstanding leaders, men and women around the country, that, that are giving consideration to entering uh, the race as well. And, and um, I, I just think it's, it's more about what, what the times are calling for. You know, we, we have had, we've had a broken immigration system now for about 25 years, and we've been talking about it for a long time. I write about it a bit uh, in my book, but uh, the way we can go forward is what we began in our administration, which was secure the border, um, support internal enforcement. Um, but I also think the American people want the kind of leadership that could say, okay, how can we actually modernize this system? bring a merit-based immigration system together that would put the interests and needs of our nation first, but also recognize the inherent value of a working immigration system to a growing America. I, I write in the book about my grandfather being an immigrant, um, stepping through Ellis Island in 1923, going to Chicago and driving a bus for 40 years, um, and raising my mom and, and seeing the American dream unfurl. We it's those kinds of issues that we, we can solve, but it's going, to take, uh, it's going to take leadership that has the understanding of how you get things done, put into practice conservative principles. But I think that really does begin with a, a brand of leadership that uh, is willing to listen to all sides and, and see where we can find genuine common ground. I know you've got to run, but I want to close with a couple of very quick policy questions, and we can do it in the lightning round. Uh, you put out a great freedom agenda, and uh, I know Thank you're you. passionate about foreign policy from your days of serving on the House Foreign Affairs Committee. President Biden four times said that we would defend Taiwan, and then four times the White House has walked him back. Was he right the first time, and should we get rid of the policy of strategic ambiguity, and would you do that if you were president? America stands for freedom, and I understand the genesis of strategic ambiguity in our relationship with China, but, our, but the truth of the matter is that— uh, when you see uh, the decade of trade abuses uh, by China, when you see human rights abuses against their own people, uh, Christians, Muslim Uyghurs, and other religious minorities, and then when you see the ongoing military provocations that have taken place in the Taiwan Straits and also the South China Sea, I think now more than ever we need to send a deafening message of support uh, to the free people of the Asia-Pacific in Taiwan, in South Korea, in Japan, in Australia, that, that we are going to stand with them. And I believe it is time for us to move away from ambiguity and send an unambiguous message that, that we will stand with those with whom we have treaty obligations, who are free people, uh, and that includes Taiwan. Final question, Ukraine. There is majority of Republicans support Ukraine. There's a vocal minority who have said when, when Republicans take over, not a dime more for Ukraine. How do Republicans deal with that? And how important is defeating Vladimir Putin in Ukraine and helping the Ukrainians do that to deterring China from going after Taiwan? I've met Vladimir Putin. I've spoken to him one-on-one, -on -one, told him things he didn't want to hear. 
And I will tell you, my instinct is Putin only understands power. You know, I don't think it's any coincidence that ours was the only administration in the 21st century where Putin did not attempt to redraw international lines by force. He did it in Georgia during the Bush administration. He did it in Crimea in the Obama administration. And now he's moved against Ukraine again in the Biden administration. And I, I believe that was uh, a result of the fact that not only had we redoubled our commitment to our national defense, largest increase in our national defense since the days of Ronald Reagan under the Trump-Pence administration, but also we were willing to allow the armed forces of the United States to use American power to advance our interests, whether it be cruise missiles into Syria, whether it be turning loose our armed forces to take down the ISIS caliphate uh, and their leader, uh, or whether it be using military force to eliminate the most dangerous terrorists in the world. So I think the credible threat of the use of force and a strong military uh, made the difference. And uh, in this moment in Ukraine, I, I look, I, you know me, Mark, you've known me a long time. I'm a fiscal conservative. I think we ought to be scrum of the federal budget every day and every penny and make sure it's going to the right places. But the United States of America is the leader of the free world. And we need to continue to lead the free world in giving the Ukrainian military the support they need to defeat the Russian army and defend their sovereignty. In March of this last year, my wife Karen and I were returning from the Middle East. We stopped in Poland to, to thank relief workers at the outset of the Russian invasion. And uh, we were told then that we were actually going to be permitted to go into Ukraine to a refugee center. We crossed the border, went five miles in. And Mark, I think anyone in the sound of my voice today would have been horrified to see what I saw. They were images that I'd only seen in black and white in my life. Long lines, all women and children. Women of every age, children of every age, people dragging behind them and carrying on their shoulders all their earthly possessions, fleeing from the violence being inflicted in the unconscionable invasion in Ukraine. And it simply broke my heart. And uh, it convinced me that this is a moment when America needs to stand strong. We are leading the world now. The West is rising up and standing strong, but it is because we've provided American strength in the lead. And uh, I believe as the new Republican majority in Congress will do their duty, uh, we will make sure that the Ukrainian people have the support that they need uh, to defend their sovereignty, to defeat the Russian army, and... Um, and restore the peace, and, and uh, we cannot send any other message. Because anyone who believes that Vladimir Putin will stop at Ukraine has, as we say back in Indiana, another thing coming. I was in Estonia and Latvia and, and Lithuania in the first year of our administration when 120,000 Russian troops were raided along their border. And make no mistake about it, while Ukraine is not a NATO ally that requires direct American involvement, those countries are. And uh, I think making sure that Ukraine has the ability to defend their freedom and their sovereignty today is the best way to not only restrain Russia, but uh, to prevent uh, greater tragedy in the future. Mr. Vice President, from your lips to House Republicans' ears, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us today. We're so proud to have you on the podcast. Thank you, Mark. And thank you for your leadership. Thank you. Great to be with you. 
so much of what we talk about is consumed with the Donald Trump question, but what really warmed my heart in your conversation with Vice President Pence was his foreign policy. I miss hearing from people who consider themselves stalwart conservatives the idea that America stands for freedom. That is at the center of everything we do. And it really has been a huge and growing problem in certain parts of the Republican Party to try to shy away from Ukraine, to try to shy away from the importance of standing up to enemies outside of China. He was really great on Taiwan. He was great on Ukraine. He was great on what we need to do in the world. He was great on our defense budget. I wish everybody hewed the same line. Well, he's probably going to make the case that that would be a good reason for you to support him for president, Danny. (laughs) (laughs) He's taken out that lane and good for him for doing that. Look, I mean, he also made the point, which I thought was very insightful, is that what Russia and quite frankly, he said he was referring to Russia and Putin, but China and everyone else is they respect strength. And he made a very interesting point, which is that the Trump, Trump Pence administration, as he refers to it correctly, is the only administration in the 21st century in which Putin has not tried to redraw international borders by force. 2008, under Bush, he invaded Georgia. In 2014, he invaded Crimea under Obama. And now, under Biden, he invaded Ukraine uh, and tried to take the whole the whole enchilada. This is a lesson for us. And you know, we, we spent a lot of time at the start of the podcast talking about the manifold flaws of Donald Trump's character. The Trump administration projected strength, and it's not a coincidence that Putin didn't take any action against uh, Ukraine while he was in office. This is why I, I said at that poll at the beginning that by a two-to-one margin, Republicans want to continue the Trump administration's policies without Trump, right? And there's a lot of people in this country who can't seem to separate the Trump administration's policies from the, you know, from Trump the person. Republicans are not going to embrace a pre-MAGA, never Trump nominee for the GOP nomination in 2024. It's going to be somebody who is going to follow those same policies. And good for good for us, because we need a policy of strength. We need to project strength in the world. We need to rebuild our military. We need to whack people when they cross our red lines, as Trump did, taking out Qasem Soleimani when the Iranians threatened American servicemen in, in Iraq. We need to project well, okay. strength again. I mean, you know, I agree with all of those policies, yeah. and, I, and I agree on the need for us to do those things, because otherwise yeah. we pay a heavy price when we retreat. But most of the candidates who are now on Capitol Hill, who identify themselves as most like Donald Trump, don't embrace those ideas. They don't give a damn about Ukraine. They are interested in trying to cut back on spending for Ukraine. And they are one of the reasons why support among Republicans for supporting Ukraine has declined precipitously since the beginning of 2022. So, you know, yes, that's great that Mike Pence is in the right place, but I suspect he doesn't actually represent this sort of nasty MAGA legacy on foreign policy. I mean, do you- I don't I don't see it the same way you do, Danny. Who are, who are the people who are most vocal against Ukraine? It's Mar- the most vocal person on Capitol Hill is Marjorie Taylor Greene. She's a nut job. 
She leads a small, unfortunately, increasingly powerful because of the narrow majority in the House, caucus, a minority caucus of nutjob and isolationists. But that's not where the majority of the Republican Party is. I don't think on Capitol Hill. I don't think in terms of our, our presidential candidates either. Again, we have, you know, one of the big problems we have is that our the people running for president don't talk a lot about foreign policy in the early stages of their campaigns until they have to. And so, you know, a lot of these guys are governors like DeSantis, who seems to have had a good record as a congressman and seems to say a lot of the right things from what I've seen of limited of what he says. But we're not going to know for a while where they stand. But I haven't seen uh, most of those presidential candidates joining the field of nut jobs and uh, aligning themselves with Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world. <laughs> I am I'm pleased to continue with your nomenclature. I really hope that most Republicans won't end up in the nut job position. So, so I think we, I think, Danny, we sh- we should really look into these Jewish space lasers, because I think that could be a really good weapon we could give Zelensky because he's Jewish. And he needs lasers. So I think if we got the Jewish space lasers and got Israel to give them to the Ukrainians. You're so right, Mark. And I hope yeah. someone clips this excerpt and, and plays it on repeat for us. In fact, I could, I think I'm going to make it my ringtone. But you know, I was about to say to you, um, I was about to say to you, um, DeSantis actually just met with the Israeli ambassador and the Emirati ambassador, which I thought was kind of interesting. So if he's sticking his toe into foreign policy waters, then we know he's pretty, he's starting to get a little more serious serious about about 2024. Look, the right thing for all of us who believe, you know, as as Mike Pence said that you know America stands for freedom, the right thing for all of us to do is to keep pressure up on these candidates to ensure that they don't start parroting, you know, Jewish space laser garbage. Because, yeah, that's, you know, speaking as a Jew, not not a thing that at least I have access to. Perhaps I've been excluded from the Space Laser Consortium. I don't well, know. Well, at your, at your next meeting with the Rothschilds, why don't, you, why don't you bring it up and see if you can get access to that program? I'm going to. Hey, so we have a small announcement for our listeners. First of all, happy Hanukkah, happy Christmas to everybody. And Mark and I are going to be off in the week between Christmas and New Year's. Uh, Clara, our doughty producer, is taking a little time off to be with her family. So are we, and we hope you are too. And we look forward to seeing you in, oh my God, 2023. We will be back in January, first week of January, 2023. I uh, do my annual columns of the 10 best and 10 worst things that, that uh, the president of the United States did. In this case, Joe Biden. I'm almost done with my list, Danny. I actually managed to come up with 10 good things that Joe Biden did, which was, it, it, it takes so much work, <laughs> but I think I've done it. And I am having a hard time culling my list down to just 10 of the negative things. But I'm trying to be fair to this president and give him 10 of each. So we will sit down and discuss them with everybody when we get back. Can't wait. Happy New Year, Mark. Happy New Year to you, Danny. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 